2: Welcome, 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 welcome. It is Tuesday, October 20th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and I am so, so excited and so happy to be back in the studio, especially with my friend, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. Welcome back, John.
3: Hey, Michelle. Welcome back, Michelle.
2: I, <laughs> we missed you so much last week. Oh. I feel like uh, life could not go on the rest of the week <laughs> without you. <laughs> um,
3: luckily, it did. It, <laughs>
2: It did for a short while, and then you know we ran we ran a program from mm-hmm. Commonwealth Club on Thursday. Thank you very much, uh, and also your program week to week political roundtable talk on on Friday. And I was away; I was in Las Vegas. Uh, no for... need
3: to tell me what you're doing. I understand. <laughs> okay, like, okay. So anyway, what's no there that whole
2: date? that whole thing. What you know ha- what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Uh, did not apply on this trip because nothing really happened. <laughs> um, you know, staying off the strip, but in what I. What I now know is, you know, kind of like the the gay scene. Um, so it was near the Hyde Rock Cafe, okay, or the Hyde Rock Hotel. Uh, and so I played it. I stayed at this place, the Alexis Park Resort and Hotel. So I think they should drop the resort part. Um,
3: it's not very resorty.
2: <laughs> it was not. <laughs> It was not very resorty uh, and not to not to give them such a public uh, review on on my show. But um, let's just say it just wasn't the experience I was expecting, considering I was telling people that I'm going to Vegas.
3: <laughs> the Michelle Meow Show in cooperation with Yelp. Right.
2: <laughs> um, but, you know, I was there for uh, a uh, an LGBT pride Conference, so it's called Interpride, and basically, you know, the over sixty delegates of of uh, of people from around the world who are pride organizers converged and convened at this place at the Alexis Park Resort. Um, but it was incredible. I met people from Germany. I met people from Canada. I met people from Korea. Um, and, uh, it was really, really awesome to connect with, with prides around the world.
3: And now were you there in your new capacity? I don't know if people know this. You're the newly elected president of the board of SF pride.
2: Uh, yes, I, I, I definitely was. Thank you. Um,
3: now, you, uh, <laughs> do you have to wear a crown or, I mean, how did they pick you up?
2: Um, you know, I, I, I wear my T-shirt. I wear my okay. Pride T-shirt. <laughs> that'll, that'll work. But that's the thing about Prides is we, you know, you, the whole thing is you collecting a ton of T-shirts, <laughs> free T-shirts. Yeah. Now everybody brought their T-shirts and un, unloaded them. So I have all these like free T-shirts now that I'll go to the gym that says like Pride New Mexico, Pride wherever.
3: And, and people listening can't see this, but she is wearing one now. It is from New York City Pride.
2: It is from New York City Pride. I'm, I'm proud to announce that New York City Pride pride will celebrate stonewall 50 so 50 year the 50 year anniversary of stonewall in 2019 and they were chosen to then host world pride so world pride will happen in new york city also at the same time uh as stonewall 50 so it's extremely significant it's so significant san francisco might move their date so that yes we can celebrate you know 50 the 50 year anniversary of stonewall wow Um, Okay, let's get today's program started. We have a great show for you. We're celebrating Third Eye, the San Francisco South Asian Film Festival, and also celebrating us. I mean, you as people can be a brand, and if you can unleash your inner you, you can be something huge, just like our next guest. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our guest today is a Harvard MBA and also an MIT alum president. He says that accepting his sexuality in his 30s was an asset and likely advanced him to where he is today, which is on the Michelle Miao Show. So let's welcome John Chisholm to the show. John, welcome to the program.
0: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you very much, Michelle.
2: You've got a a great brand new book, Unleash Your Inner Company. And, um, you know, it's interested in having this discussion with you, especially here in the San Francisco Bay Area, in which, you know, we have someone like Tim Cook who exists here, uh, probably the one and only out gay um, CEO of at least a Fortune 5 company, I think, right? Um, And so, yeah.
0: Certainly the most valuable. Company in the world in terms of market capitalization,
2: right? So let's start with um, let's start with your story. I mean, I think uh, that's pretty important in understanding, you know, kind of uh, how you came up, uh, at least your struggles. So, do you want to share with us a coming out story?
0: Sure. Um, It was uh, when I was 34. I was on the other side of the world in Australia on a business trip. Uh, I'd known that I'd been attracted to other men since I was in junior high school, uh, but just did not want to go there. And uh, I, uh, the last day of my business trip, I went scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef, uh, mel- met a wonderful guy, and uh, that ended up uh, with, as my first sexual experience with another man. Uh, I came back here to uh, the U.S., to, to Silicon Valley, and just didn't know which way to turn, and over the course of the next four years, I, I gradually accepted the fact and step-by-step step came out. It was a, a four-year coming-out period for me. One of the things I say in the book is it is really important to view any aspect of yourself that you genuinely cannot change as an asset. And I, I give five reasons in the book that being gay has been an asset for me. Um, I, can, I can share those if, if you think that would be of interest yes, to please your do. audience.
2: Yeah, Uh, go for it.
0: One is I'm not a minority in any other sense that I can think of other than being gay, so it sensitized uh, me to what it's like to be a minority, too. It wasn't socially acceptable to be openly out uh, when I was growing up, and so at least some of the energy that I might have put into uh, dating, I put into sports and career and, and studies, and today, 30 years later, I'm hugely enjoying the benefit of that early investment. Three, Uh, You know when you're growing up gay, unambiguously, with absolute certainty, that at least some of the world's routine assumptions are wrong, namely that guys are attracted to gals and and vice versa. You know that it's not universally correct. So uh, being gay has helped me think outside of the box, not necessarily accept the status quo, and that has helped me be a better entrepreneur. Four, uh, when people realize that I'm uh, okay with the fact that they know that I'm gay, Uh, It uh, conveys that I'm not uh, trying to hide anything about myself, and it helps build trust between us. And five, it further conveys uh, that I've got strength and reserve if I can be openly out. So similarly, I I advise um, the readers of my book, Unleash Your Inner Company, that if there's any aspect of yourself that you genuinely cannot change, find a way to view it as an asset. Uh, set the bar very high. Don't use this as an excuse to accept some aspect of yourself that you can change and would like to change. But if you genuinely cannot change it, if you can find a way to view it as an asset, it'll be hugely liberating for you as it was for me. And that aspect of yourself will become one of your assets.
3: I think that's a really strong explanation. And one of your your, uh, bullet points there um, is particularly interesting about how this allows you to think outside the box because you realize certain things that, other people accept as universal or not universal Um, in a business situation, you know, that say you've got a client or a business partner who is terrible, I think, and outside the box. So how can you communicate to them? I mean, you've got this, the superpower, if you will, (laughs) of being able to to think around a a subject some way that they're not able to Uh, do, do you have an added ability then to get them to do it? Or do you have to really think around them as well?
0: Well, I I don't view it so much as an editability, but a, a, a willingness to uh, challenge uh, given assumptions. Because again, you've grown up knowing that at least some of the world's assumptions can be wrong—routine assumptions—and mm-hmm. uh, then uh, trying to look at things from different angles and 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 uh, find ways that uh, you can make things work that that. Uh, other people might not
3: think about. Um, one thing I was thinking as I was going through this book was, uh, you know, obviously there are lots of folks who want to get into business in in some way. Maybe they've tried uh, several times and failed. Um, what do you kind of think are the biggest one or two things that, that holds people back or, or leads them to failure? Is it, you know, the, their, their mental approach and their understanding of themselves or is it more, uh, kind of basic stuff of you know lack of financing and or lack of business networks or lack of business education which really this book is and you you give some real specifics on 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 you know business uh, uh, preparation and, and con- conducting it
0: well I, th- I I do think all the things you mentioned lack of financing and, and uh, lack of education are things that hold people back, but they need not hold people back. And one of the key points that I make in the book is the right startup for you to start is absolutely unique to you. I think a lot of people have the idea, oh, I'm supposed to start something in high tech or a mobile app or something I'm supposed to do. It doesn't have to work that way at all. Entrepreneurs, and it should not work that way. Entrepreneurs are not interchangeable like light bulbs or batteries. The right uh, startup for you to start, is all about what you are passionate about. And if you can become passionate about something, uh, it could be anything, any aspect of life, family, sports, a hobby, career, work, uh, a field of science, uh, some new technology, anything at all, travel, uh, look, uh, look for unsatisfied needs in that area. And uh, sometimes I'll hear, gosh, the things I'm passionate about aren't very businesslike. I like long, hot baths or kittens or comic books. Those don't seem very businesslike. Well, the fact is that even in those areas, there are plenty of thousands of potentially an infinite number of unsatisfied uh, customer needs. For example, a long, hot bath. People need uh, and like to talk on the phone or, or read while they're in the tub. Uh, uh, how about a floating waterproof device that lets you read on your iPad or talk on your smartphone while you're in the tub? If you like kittens, uh, kittens are wonderful until they grow up to be cats when they're less cuddly and and, uh, affectionate. What if there were a diet or some kind of therapy that would keep a kitten a kitten for the rest of their life? Comic books, the hugely popular and successful trade show Comic-Con that happens in San Diego every year attracts over 130,000 people, and, and uh, that's an example of a huge success. So no matter what it is that you're passionate about, look for unsatisfied needs. And the book shows you how. And also the book shows you how in Chapter 1, if you're not passionate about anything, as I sometimes hear from young people in particular, you can be, anyone can become passionate about something. It might take work. It might take a bit of perseverance to go deep into that area and learn as much as you can about it. Uh, but the good news is uh, you start with something you're interested in. And the good news is anyone can do it.
3: Your book has uh, obviously lots of information and, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh guidance and, and suggestions and such. Um, how long have you been thinking of writing the book? I mean, is this something you, you intentionally wanted to do for a long time, or you got to a point in your career and life where you thought, you know, I want to share what I've learned so far. What? what how did this come about?
0: I sold my last company in uh, early 2008, and I stayed with the parent who acquired us for one year until early 2009. And after that, I was invited to speak to some groups of of young entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs in in Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And I started out with a 30-minute talk and then a 90-minute talk and then a a half-day workshop. Uh, And then I was invited to give a TED Talk. And as you know, with TEDx Talks, you have to reduce everything down to 18 minutes. And I had all this material. And the process of compressing it down to 18 minutes was so clarifying uh, because it forces you to see, okay, what are the main points that you want to make? that I realized for the first time that I had uh, the potential for this to be a book. That was in 2011. And so I started working on it over over the next four years more and more earnestly. And in 2014, it was pretty much a full-time job. I finished it uh, in January of this year, 2015, submitted it to my publisher, and it just came out two weeks ago today.
3: Well, congratulations. Thank
0: you. Thank you. It's, it's been very fun to, to share the word and to uh, show people that uh, anyone uh, – the, the book is written very broadly mm-hmm. – can start their own business. You don't have to be a Harvard MBA. You don't have to have an engineering degree or be a computer scientist. You do have to be passionate about something. As, uh, that gives you two great advantages. One is you discover the limits of what you can do, uh, of what is possible with currently available products or services quicker than others do, because you're pushing up against the boundaries of what you can do with currently available products and services in areas that you're passionate about. And two is it gives you staying power to break through obstacles that will inevitably arise. So uh, uh, that's why I say, uh, and the name of the, the first chapter of the book is passion and perseverance, a positive feedback loop. The two reinforce each other. Passion is an attitude, and perseverance is a behavior. And the more we act a certain way, the more that builds the attitude in us. The stronger the attitude is, the more it's easier to act a certain way. That sounds
2: awesome. Yeah, that sounds that sounds so great. Hey, John, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, I'd love to continue our discussion and dive into unleashing your inner company. In which, um, yeah, I'd, I'd like to ask you a couple questions, especially myself as a female who uh, who you know started my own production company and in, into the media world where it's male dominating. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Right.
3: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
2: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is with us, and our guest today is John Chisholm with his new book, Unleash Your Inner Company. And we're talking about how being openly gay can be an asset for you in at least uh, five ways that John outlines in his book, John, I want to dive into I want to dive into me. I want to talk about I want, <laughs> sure. No, only in that that I think that there, here's an example. I, I mean, there's so many things that I think members of the LGBTQ community are still struggling with, which is coming out and identity. I mean, for some of us who work for some high powered companies, big tech companies, there's still like this uh, culture or, or something that we need to abide by. Like if you're too out, that could be a a problem for you, um, or maybe you're you're used to you know acting one way, not you know the not too gay, especially if you're gay male, in order to maintain your um, status, especially as you're an executive. I mean, I know that I'm just kind of rambling off some some big ideas here, um, but I, I'm I'm guessing you've had to address that at some point, especially in your talks or discussion, uh, you know, in your book.
0: I've given uh, uh, my workshop uh, all over the world, in Asia, in Eastern Europe, uh, in, in Morocco. And uh, when I get to the part where I come out uh, and talk about the five reasons that uh, uh, being gay has been an asset for me uh, in starting my own business, you can hear a pin drop, especially in cultures outside of the United States where it is just not talked about. Uh, it is really uh, jarring to hear a middle-aged uh, professionally dressed uh, a businessman uh, talk about being gay one of the one of the messages in the book is never say anything negative about yourself and actually the reason no matter what it is uh, you know I'm forgetful i'm not good at math i'm ill at ease socially whatever it is I'm not worried about what other people will think about you I'm worried about what your most important audience will think about you, namely your unconscious mind. Because if you repeat these things again and again, I'm bad at sports, I'm no good at math, whatever, it will become a reality. Your unconscious mind will start to accept it as a reality, and that will hold you back, whether it's entrepreneurship or in anything else. So one of the things I say is, no matter what negative thought might creep into your mind, think of a specific moment no matter how small, where you did the opposite. Uh, you did the math in your head. Uh, you were at a party, and you put everyone at ease. Uh, the, you were the star of the game uh, in a sport. And m- make that moment very tangible. If you have any pictures of it, if you uh, put them on your refrigerator, if you, have, uh, if you can write down uh, the details of it, write a couple of paragraphs, when did it happen? Where did it happen? Make it as tangible as possible. Read those paragraphs before you fall asleep and let your unconscious mind absorb those positive thoughts about you. And those uh, positive qualities, no matter how small, will become the new you and become a new reality for you. And uh, it'll further strengthen you to take on whatever challenge you want to.
3: When you go out and you you give these these presentations, do you do whether whatever culture it's in i mean do folks come up to you who are lgbtq or and specifically then start kind of telling you about their stories or asking you what they should do in their specific situations or do you get a a wall of silence and oh my god he's gay (laughs) Uh, uh,
0: no uh it's interesting uh sometimes people come up and and refer to some very neutral aspect of the talk that they really liked like Time management, mm-hmm. you know, that's something that's safe and uh, that uh, anyone can feel comfortable. Occasionally, somebody will come up, uh, and and often people feel empowered with things other than being gay, uh, aspects of themselves. I was giving uh, the talk uh, a talk in Guatemala uh, at a university there in, to an auditorium of, of students, and about halfway back, there was a young man who. Uh, was sitting, and as I was sharing this about, uh, if there was some aspect of yourself, find a way to view it as an asset. And uh, he made a uh, very gently made a fist and raised it to his chest and held it there while I was speaking. And at first, I thought it was some small gesture of agreement or support for what I was saying. And then when I looked more closely, I realized he wasn't making a fist at all. His finger, his hands, his hand had no fingers on it. And I imagine he was saying, this I cannot change. This is my strength. So uh, these uh, ideas and, and techniques are applicable no matter what uh, is the aspect of yourself. Uh, maybe one of your parents or you was incarcerated. Uh, how can you view that as an asset? And again, if you can find a way to view it as an asset, it will become one of your assets and and further strengthen you to do whatever it is uh, you want to, whatever challenge you want to take on.
2: John, what about when your brand is gay? Like, I mean, the product, um, your business, and, and everything uh, about your business is LGBT-related. And we're, you know, in this time, uh, our, the political environment, there are some spaces in which you can thrive and then in some spaces that – you will not be able to in certain parts of this country. And I mean, what, what would you say to, to entrepreneurs who um, have products that are you know, extremely targeted and niche?
0: I think it's a very good uh, uh, market to get uh, started in. It's, it's, a, it's a well-defined market. It tends to be, it tends to be overall an affluent market. Uh, it depends upon the product and service, of course tends to be a tight-knit community and so you get to know your customers and your suppliers uh, even outside of the business relationship, which can only help uh, a new business getting off the ground. And I think it's entirely up to the entrepreneur whether they want to expand beyond that market. Uh, in a place like San Francisco, the, L- uh, the, the gay and lesbian community is large enough to, to uh, sustain many businesses. Uh, you may well though, want to expand beyond that. And that's perfectly okay, too. It is a very solid base from which to expand to, say, a broader consumer business. Uh, uh, One of the principles I talk about in the book is the bowling pin principle, which is when you're starting a business, think of the first market that you address as uh, a bowling pin that you want to knock down. Uh, That means you want to... uh, uh, penetrate that market and get a good brand name recognition in that market, and then as you, a, a very good way and solid way to grow is to use that bowling pin, then to to knock down the next bowling pin, and to have those bowling pins knock down the next one, and so on and so on, and so each successive bowling pin can be larger, and because you've got more strength to knock it down with. And uh, so the uh, gay and lesbian uh, market may well uh, figure somewhere into that uh, series of, of bowling pins. You,
3: you, uh, you talk about the importance of, of being passionate about something and, and using that. Tell us about some of the things you're passionate about and how you've, you've built on that and whether those passions well, have changed over time.
0: As, as, as anyone who's known me since junior high school knows, I've been a math geek since junior high school. So, uh, in in fact, uh, my buddy Al Pion and I uh, memorized Pi to 100 places in junior high school, and we would, uh, like tossing a ball back and forth, uh, recite the the digits back and forth. So he'd say three, I'd say point, and then one, four, one, five, nine, and so forth. So it's not surprising that 30 years later, uh, the two companies, my first two companies actually even the third company I've co-founded, have all had to do with data analysis. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that's that's one thing. Um, I, I, my, my mission in life now and for the last several years since I sold my last company has been to help other people uh, do what they love, uh, achieve independence, financial and otherwise, and make the world a better place through entrepreneurship. They make the world a better place by finding a customer need uh, and that hasn't been satisfied yet or isn't adequately being satisfied and, and satisfying that. Uh, and so that's what I'm passionate about most of all right now.
2: John, last question for you. Uh, so sorry, we're winding down on time here. And, and uh, John and I will definitely dive into the book and unleash your inner selves, right, John? Tomorrow you'll be like The most successful entrepreneur I know. Count on it. Yes. You know, we talked a little bit, and we touched on you know how being gay can adversely affect you being an entrepreneur, or at least that's the that's what the media has taught us, or that w- that is what society has taught us, um, that we can't be uh, you know successful and gay at the same time. Uh, but what about you know? Obviously, you're successful, and we've been talking about it for the last half hour here, and, and kind of any um, any thoughts on on how why you might think that being gay is unique, and that it can absolutely be be a, a successful characteristic or a, a unique element of of the individual um, that is the entrepreneur, such as like Tim Cook.
0: Well, I I was not fully out in my first company yet. That was in the early nineties, uh, and I think you are slightly handicapped if you do not at least come out a little bit uh, in whatever work situation you're in, whether it's a startup or a, or a fortune 500 company, because so much of teamwork and leadership has to do with our overall relationship with people and uh, how well you feel, you know, people, how well you trust people has to do with how well, how well you trust them has to do with how well you know them. And so even, even, even if you just share a glimpse, a little bit, uh, you don't have to go into details about your social life, about your personal life with your coworkers. I think it's helpful because it helps build trust uh, uh, among you and your coworkers. If uh, if your coworkers don't know anything about you, if your entire personal life outside of the workplace is a black box, I think that handicaps you from developing the kinds of uh, close working relationships that say a startup needs or that any company needs in a, uh, in a crunch time or that uh, your management might want to uh, uh, need to feel comfortable with assigning you more responsibility. So I, I encourage people to, to come out to the extent they're comfortable with. And, And if they don't feel they can, come out at all, for whatever reason, uh, you know, maybe it's, it's not the right environment to be in in the first place.
2: John, thank you so much for sharing uh, with us here on the program this morning.
0: Michelle, thank you. It's been a great pleasure.
2: John Chisholm, everyone, get get his book if you would like to unleash your inner self. Unleash Your Inner Company is the name of the book, and available, of course, via Amazon and anywhere you can get your hands on a book. Don't go away. When we come back, we will celebrate Third Eye, the Third Eye Film Festival, which kicks off here in San Francisco, and otherwise known as the San Francisco South Asian uh, Film Festival. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday, October 20th. I'm Michelle Meow, your host, and John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. So oh, it's, I feel so safe when I'm around you. Okay. <laughs> do what i can. <laughs> no, i just i i just love, you know, having people in studio. All right, let's kick off our the second half of our show celebrating the Third Eye Film Festival which kicks off here in San Francisco in a couple days. Third Eye Film Festival is celebrating South Asian films. And so our next guest is the director and producer of Petals in the Dust, a powerful documentary examining the conditions of women who are becoming endangered due to the violence they face in modern India. So let's welcome Naina Kaputi to the program. Naina, welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Michelle. I'm excited to be on your show.
2: Yes, I, I'm excited to address this topic in which I've been so extremely cautious to discuss because I know that there are, um, you know, uh, various things that come into play. Uh, the film touches on the root of misogyny, and you've done extensive research on this topic and, and, and have even coined the term gendercide. You know, why? Let's, let's go try to answer that. Why attack women? Um, what, what is the root of the issue here?
1: You know, it's such a complex issue that despite spending seven years on the film and, you know, interviewing hundreds, not hundreds, a lot of activists and women who are survivors, I wasn't, no one was able to give me one, you know, this is the reason why it's happening. There are many different reasons. I mean, dowry has been in existence for years. And, uh, you know, even though it's illegal in India, it still happens and, you know, you so even though women are educated and wealthy come from educated and wealthy families it doesn't matter you know they're still it still is i'm marrying your daughter she could be a lawyer she could be a software engineer she could be earning more than me but it's my right as a man to you know get dowry from the the wife, the woman's family and so for from so for many people they you know they they see oh you know once if i have a daughter i'm gonna lose this much money when my, you know, when my daughter gets married. And of course, with, you know, people who are, you know, low income, uh, dowry still exists. And for them, you know, some of them go into death forever. So there's this whole, I mean, one is there's this obsession with, you know, getting your daughter married, because if you don't get your daughter married, your duty is not done. And most people, you know, feel they can only marry their daughters if they marry them to people from the same, you know, community or also accepting dowry. Of course, there are more women now standing up and saying, I will not marry someone who asks for dowry, you know, Uh, that's, so, so dowry definitely is one of them. The other, you know, which um, was also interesting was India was, uh, you know, was an agricultural country and women played a, you know, a vital role in farming. But as mechanization came in, the women found, you know, women's roles uh, were then relegated to the kitchen and running the house, and they were then, they they were seen as a burden because they were no longer involved in, you know, um, growing the crops. And that, too, seems to have, you know, uh, affected the status of women in India. So these were some of, you know, the issues, and it's happening across religions, across uh, you know, uh, educate. You know, educated. The low income. It doesn't matter about you know where, the, what the status of uh, the families in terms of caste, in terms of property and wealth. So, it, it it as I said, it's so complex that there are all these different factors that are leading to, uh, you know, seeing woman a woman as less equal to a man, which is leading to you know parents killing their daughters, or then later in life, you know, uh, you know, last week there were these horrific rapes of three toddlers, you know, a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old 5 that were brutally gang- gang-raped in India and in the capital. And, you know, so if one's own parent sees you as a burden and wants to discard you, uh, you know, obviously the attitude of other men to girls and women, w- you know, will be really low because, you know, there's so little value placed on girls. And what also bothers me is the kind of violence that is, you know, uh, when we had the rape, a couple of years ago in Delhi not only was she brutally gang raped but they violated her with an iron rod they threw her out uh, you know and tried to run o- run over her so you can see the violence that is associated with with you know sexual act as well. I mean sexual acts are violence but there's additional violence inflicted on the woman
3: I, I think uh, as people in the West have read about like some of the, those cases that have gotten a lot of attention and those most recent uh, rapes of the children in in, in Delhi, um, aren't aware actually of just the staggering numbers that are involved and, and your film gets into some of this for example um, more women have been killed in the last 20 years than uh, Jews w- were killed in the holocaust I mean sure. t- talk a bit about the. Yeah, I mean the scale of this
1: that that's involved sure and you know I just also wonder before I go death too much is you know I, what I found was you know when I started doing the film was gender violence is universal and Every country does have different forms of gender. It just manifests itself in, you know, different ways. And, uh, you know, the U.S. actually has, um, you know, high, the number of rapes happening in the U.S. is more than the number of rapes happening in India for women less than 18. So, you know, there's different forms. But what shocked me about, the, you know, the violence and uh, the gendercide in India is that parents are resorting to it. You know, parents are, are killing their own daughters because... They, they, you know, put uh, they see them as a burden, and and uh, so, so, so I grew. Up, I was really lucky. I grew up in a family where my father actually wanted four daughters, so he was they weren't able to have me and my brother. So I grew up feeling very, uh, you know, special. And you know, my dad and my mom didn't discriminate between me and my brother. You know, I was in fact, my dad was so keen on me getting into technology. I mean, now there's so much focus on women in tech. In those days, there wasn't, but yet my dad wanted me to be an engineer. I didn't, but it just showed that, you know, so a lot of us grew up in this little bubble and were not aware of what was going on around us. It was only 12 years ago when I visited an orphanage in India where, you know, they would tell me infanticide is happening. There are very few girls available for adoption, uh, you know, and uh, when I went home and, you know, I more than that, you know, I saw that I read that there were 50 million girls that were eliminated in the last century, which is really, I mean, it's, it's mind boggling. And, you know, I wasn't even aware of it. And I spoke to some of my contemporaries and they weren't aware of it either. And, uh, you know, then, so infanticide has played a huge role. And, uh, you know, then there have been, you know, there are a lot of dowry deaths as well. So when a woman is not able to provide enough dowry, uh, her husband or sometimes husband and the in-laws set her on fire and kill her. And the reason they do that is so then the man can remarry. There's, again, as I mentioned, there's so much pressure on families to marry their daughter. So even though they might know the man is guilty of you know, possibly killing his wife for dowry, they're still so desperate to marry their daughter. They will marry. So the dowry deaths have also, you know, resulted in this, uh, you know, number of girls, missing in India, so it's it's infanticide, it's dowry death you know, with many of the cases of rape, after they raped the girl, they, they murder her, so rape has also and then of course we have domestic violence which again is, you know, very little is said about domestic violence in India, you know, you grew up in, in India and things might be changing now, but it's usually whatever happens in the family stays in the family, people don't speak out about what, you know, kind of violence they're facing in their own families. So all this has led to these staggering numbers and, uh, you know, in 20 years time they say there will be 20% more men than women in India. Already we're feeling the effects of this gender imbalance in in the North where there are fewer women than men. Uh, so men So women are actually trafficked as brides from, you know, the poorer states in India, from other from, from Bangladesh and Nepal, our neighboring countries. And uh, what happens, they're not just sold to, to one man, they're sold to all the men in the family. And sometimes once the woman gives birth to that son, then she's sold to another family where they need a bride. And some of those girls are, are really young, as young as 12 and 13.
2: Michelle Miao and John Zipper, and our guest today is Nina Kaputi, uh, who's got a new powerful documentary out, Petals in the Dust." Um, Which examines the conditions of women who are becoming endangered due to the violence they face in modern India. John, you had a great question.
3: Well, I was, I was, I really caught what you were talking about about your father, you know, wanting daughters. Um, It reminded me of a friend of mine, uh, an Indian American woman, uh, you know, bright law school student, and her her telling her father, telling her, you know, you will not marry someone who is not going to respect you. And, and, you know, you have to really. You know, it, in, in, it's very important to him that that she be herself and and really controls her own life. Um, where would you say? I mean, can you say where the most important place is to start to really get some traction on changing this? Is it? Is is there? A, I mean, a way that parents are are playing that role, or is Absolutely. it? Is it? Oh, go ahead, please. Yeah,
1: sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. So, you know, we, um, as I said, it took me seven years. I and, mean, you know, we've had so many laws in place. It's illegal to find out the gender of your child because, you know, what happens is families find out it's a girl and then they abort the baby. Or it's illegal, dowry is illegal, dowry deaths are a crime, rape is. You know, there's so many laws against it, yet mm-hmm. after the Delhi rape, you know, there have been a whole series of rapes happening, and I mean, now as young as two. So what I I believe is, you know, yes, we can have laws, we can have protest marches, we can have the media covering all this, but as as you mentioned, you know, it's really how can families change the way we, you know, we get our children to think differently, and, I, you know, I really believe, you know, one is we need, we need to introduce gender studies in you know schools maybe as early as you know a middle school or may, you know, or maybe starting with elementary uh, school with just you know simple stories where you know you see girls as role models or you see girls and boys working you know side by side at in the house for instance you know very often in homes in fam- uh, in, in families in india the girl and boy will both go to school, come home, do their homework, but then the boy can go out and play, whereas the girl has to stay home and help her mom cook. And, you know, so changing the whole mentality through, you know, simple stories where, you know, the boy is also helping his mom. Maybe you can bring in stories with the dad's involved as well in, you know, running the house, maybe the mom's working, you know, can change that attitude. And then, you know, as you go into middle and high school, you know, focusing more on how, you know, Boys view girls. How can we change that attitude? And also, you know, there have there have been some organizations organizations in India that are using mm-hmm. sports to you know teach boys and men to uh, you know uh, see women differently. I, mean, I haven't researched too much, but I just know that they have started these uh, you know sports camps and focusing on gender equality. And not just the boys; we also need to you know empower girls from a young age. They need to learn that they're equal to their brothers or the boys in their school or the community because when the girl, you know, if she knows from a young age, that you know, she starts feeling she's inferior, when she grows up and has her own kids, she's going to see her uh, sons as superior to her daughters and then her daughter, you know, and kind of repeat this cycle of gender discrimination and then when she becomes a mother-in-law, you know, um, assists her her son and husband then you know... Letting out organs of uh, harassment against her, her daughter-in-law, so I really think we need to, we need to, you know, work at the school level and also parents in the in the houses and you know need to treat, learn to treat their kids equally and talk about this because it uh, otherwise I don't see much change happening because you know we've had we have had so many laws we've had so many discussions and it seems to be just getting worse.
2: Absolutely, Nina. This is a, a, a where we have to take a break, in which I, I hate taking breaks. I mean, the conversation is so good, but you'll stay with <laughs> us, right? You. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Thanks.
2: All right, don't go away, Nina Caputi. will continue this discussion when we come back.
3: jason collins talked about gay athletes the sisters of perpetual indulgence discussed activism and good works actor and director rob reiner explained how he got hollywood behind same-sex marriage barney frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of washington from healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation, learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco, the Commonwealth Club of California puts you face to face with today's thought leaders. And now back to the Michelle Meow Show.
2: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us, and we're celebrating and kicking off the Third Eye Film Festival, which is the South Asian Film Festival. So our guest today is the director and producer of Petals in the Dust, a powerful documentary examining the conditions of women who are becoming endangered. Yes, endangered due to the violence that they face in modern India. Nina, I I wanted to bring this up. I mean, you know, here... um, in the United States, especially in the Silicon Valley, I mean, we're seeing a, an increase in terms of um, Indian Americans, uh, and also, you know, employee workers, you know, the tech industry is very friendly in employing a lot of, um, you know, South a- a- Asian Indians uh, into this. And so what are your thoughts about kind of culturally, if there is a separation of, um, maybe, a, a maybe an advancement of, of how Indian Americans, South Asian Indians here in the United States perceive what's happening in India. And if there's anything being done to, um, to also contribute to the, you know, to, to, to help with the problem, the issues that, uh, India is facing. Sure. So,
1: uh... Yes, you know, I did receive a lot of support from the Indian American community uh, in the Bay Area. You know, when I started the film, because a lot of people are concerned about what's happening there. As I said, there was so little, you know, in the in the past there was very little in the media about how bad the situation was. So unless you were in that situation or you had a family member, you were, you didn't really know. So yes, but there's, you know, I have also worked with a few non-profits uh, in in the Bay Area. One of them is My Three That. Works with survivors of trafficking and domestic violence in the South Asian community. Community, uh, the, uh, the president of my is featured in my film, and you know there are a lot of cases of domestic violence uh, happening here in in the Bay Area, which you know is shocking because you know you assume that when people move to a new country and you know most of these the women and men are highly educated, doing fabulously well in in, Chile, in the Silicon Valley, you wouldn't expect this kind. You know this kind of attitude. So, you know, I'd also interviewed uh, the Indian community in Canada because you know it has such a large uh, 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 a group of people from India, and you know it seems to be the same there. And there's also talk about there, there you know, the whole uh, patriarchal mindset is brought. Brought to this country as well. There are certain people who still believe that you know men are superior to women, and the women should just work in the kitchen. And when they get married, you know, the man. You know, one woman in Canada who I interviewed in Canada, she uh, she spoke about how when she married her Indian Canadian husband, uh, you know, the the night on the, at the on the wedding night he, he he raped her, and you know, the next morning when she told her mother-in-law about it, she said, you know, your husband is your god, and you know, whatever he does is fine. You just have to go along with that. And you know, no one came to her rescue. She, she you know, she went to the, she went to the temple leader. She was sick, sick, and uh, you know, Punjabi sick. And she said, you know, they all said, you know, you have to, uh, you you are a Punjabi woman, and whatever ha- happens in your family stays. And your family, again, there, you know, this is just one incident. There are a lot of, as I said, there's a lot of support for women who are. Who are survivors of domestic violence but there's also there is this attitude that we're bringing with us from India so it, it's not it doesn't seem to change when you come come here you know it's uh as one activist said some Indians in Canada are frozen in time you know they still they see women as inferior and also you know people still many families still want to have sons uh here living in the US uh,
3: talk a bit if you would about the the political situation in India as regard regarding women's rights and and uh, if, if they are doing anything at all to address this problem you mentioned a bit earlier that you know there have been a number of laws but they you know things if anything seem to be getting worse there is there any movement I mean I know the government the federal government right now there is is quite a conservative uh, Hindu nationalist party but what is there have they addressed this in any way whether legally or in public statements or uh, you just trying to get a social movement going
1: Oh, uh, they they seem to be, but I would say it's not. You know, it's you know it's not uh, it's not like we would like it to be. I mean, there have been you know individual cases. Every time there's a rape, they you know they come out and protest and say we have to change. But it's the, it has to be as I said. It really they have to introduce something in the schools. They have to focus on the next generation. It you know just they, it's kind of right now it's uh, reactive. Something happens and so they make they make a stricter law. But you know, are there one of the women? In my film, she... uh, So, you know, in India, it's illegal to find out the gender of your baby. And there's this one woman who was pregnant with twin girls. And, you know, when she was really sick, her -hmm. husband did um, an illegal sex determination test and found out she was going to have daughters. And this was a wealthy, educated family. He's a doctor. She's a doctor. And, you know, he kept pressuring her to abort her girls. She didn't. And he threw her out of the house. She went and lived with her parents. And she took her husband and the hospital to court because, you know, they conducted this illegal sex determination test. And it took, it, you know, two weeks ago, the case was dismissed, and, you know, the husband and the hospital authorities have gone scot-free. She has been advocating for this for 10 years, spent her whole life devoted to this, thanks to her parents' support. And, that, you know, you think this is it's a very high-profile case. She's written to the prime, you know, the prime minister. She's done all kinds of petitions, and... Every time she gets a new lawyer, the lawyer gets paid off by, you know, the husband. She even had one judge tell her, you know, all your husband wants is a son. So why don't you just go back to him and give him that son? So, you know, the new government has come and she is in Delhi in the capital. She's one of the only women who's come forward to, you know, protest what happened to her and taken her husband to court, and nothing, not there's nothing that has been done about it. I mean, she is devastated that her court, her case was uh, was dismissed, and in fact, they're trying to give her husband custody of the daughters now.
3: Oh, good lord! Um, yeah. So, so let's kind of bring this back around to the film, Petals in the in the wind, or excuse me, Petals in the dust. Um, what what? Who who do you see as the audience of this, and what do you hope they will get from it? I mean, it's kind of a basic question, but really, you you are trying Mm -hmm. to get them to change their minds or to change other people's minds, right?
1: Right. So I've actually already started screening the film. uh, You know, but the third eye is my first South Asian, the first uh, South Asian film festival I've gotten to. So I have two audiences. As I said, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, gender violence is universal, right? So my one since I live in the U.S and i've had a lot of uh, non indians in the us support my film one goal is to you know get every, you know um, um high school college and and adults watch this film and i've already been doing this yesterday i had a private screening at international house uh, uh, students from uc berkeley and the conversation was about how do we how does gender violence and gender discrimination affect our own community or our schools? And what can we do within our own community? And we've been having great conversations. So the American and non-Indian audience is one of my target audiences, and the other, you know, is of course the Indian Americans, uh, you know, the Indians in the U.S. And you know, garnering more support for the activists and non-profits in India and in the Indian diaspora, because I think right now a lot, a lot of Indian nonprofits are doing amazing work, but struggling with funds and, you know, g- finding volunteers and support. It's it's a it's a huge battle. So that's been my other goal, you know, getting um, the Indian community here to support these organizations. I would like to take the film to India, but I'm I'm trying to be more strategic because. Uh, you know, uh, India's daughter got banned a uh, few months ago, and right now, I think India is uh, very sensitive about any film that I feel portrays them in a negative light. Mm-hmm. So I've, yeah, I've been for- mm-hmm. talking to ITVS because ITVS has a really cool program uh, where they are screening films like mine to uh, to audiences in India, mostly comprising of men, and then having discussions around how you know, they, we can change the situation. So that's that's the route I would like to take to bring my film to India because right now I'd say my target audience is Indian men um, and, you know, high school and college students. The older generation... You know, it's, it's I, I'm not that I've given up on them, but I don't see them doing much.
2: Mm-hmm. Nina, we are unfortunately out of time, and gosh, I wish we had more time to spend with you. It's such an important topic, but thank you so much for making this film and for discussing this uh, again. It's it's an. It, it's gender side it's an epidemic it's it's like it's it's dangerous it's we need to do something now i want to mention that uh, the film will be viewing uh, november 1st 2:45 in palo alto so if you want to check it out uh, make sure you go to uh, you can check it out at the uh, third eye film uh i'm trying to speak as fast as i can thirdeye.org uh, nina thanks again for being with us
1: thank you michelle thank you john thank you i'll talk to you soon
2: um, okay, we la- have less than 60 seconds. We usually like to wrap up our thoughts here. Um, I will just have to say that if you go to petalsinthedust.com, right there in the front, it says 50 million girls have been eliminated. And Nina at one point had stated by 2020, it, you know, it, India will be 20% more male than female. Um so, I, I mean, go see the film, speak to Nina, but there's got to be, a uh, you know, you've, we've got to do something.
3: Yeah, it's great that she made this film because there's a lot of, just just in the, the preview of it, you will learn stuff that will shock you.
2: Thanks so much for joining us here today. I'm so happy again to be back in studio and, of course, with my good friend, John Zipper of Commonwealth Club. For all of our podcasts and shows, you can head to CommonwealthClub.org, search Meow. Uh, and for everything else, you can head to MichelleMeow.com. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Thank you. Oh, 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 oh,